And welcome back to another episode of On Stage, Off Stage. I am your host, George Sapio, and our guest this week is Associate Professor of Theater at Ithaca College, Norm Johnson. Norm teaches acting, voice, movement, stage combat, improv, and yes, even puppetry. He is a renowned mask maker and was the artistic director of the Kitchen Theater from 1994 to 1997. Norm also teaches the viewpoint technique and studied with the viewpoints maestro and Bogart. Currently, Norm is directing the Ithaca College production of Arthur Miller's classic work, The Crucible. Uh, Ithaca College, known for having one of the best theater programs in uh, any college or university across the country, has graduates from its theater program all over the place. They're all over Broadway, they're all over films, they're all over TV. Uh, as far as the curriculum goes, they go through a rigorous curriculum, and they also have a season's worth of plays and productions. My question has always been, how do these plays get selected out of the thousands that are out there? Who makes the decision on this? Well, we're in a period of transition right now, even as we speak. The season we selected for next year is the first season that has been selected by committee. Prior to that, um, directors who are identified to direct in the coming season would submit a list of three or four titles, sometimes more, sometimes less, to the chair who would then talk to the various production areas and carve out a season. Now, and we've incorporated this into our bylaws, even though we're still testing out ways that the selection works, is as a representative on the season selection committee from each of the degree areas. And anyone in the building can submit titles. Directors, designers, students, people teaching theater history, I mean, anyone, literally anyone can submit titles. And um, then when the committee comes together, um, they start to talk to each of the representatives and identify what's important for the students in different degree programs. So the students in management, one of the things that came up this year was we need a title that's really hard to market and hard to get people to come to because it's a special kind of challenge for students in theater management and marketing. Uh, the musical, we've done three classic musicals in a row, for instance, we actually haven't. So it's time to do a more contemporary rock-based musical. And actually, in reality, it was the other way around. We did a lot of rock-based stuff lately, so we've gone back to a more classical musical theater piece. Um, we consider the number of actors in the program that need to be cast, and uh, are we giving them a fair shake at having experience in different kinds of theater, not just theater recently written, but some of the classic stuff. Are we doing comedies or is it all tragedy and so on? Um, and what are the demands of the students in the tech design area? Uh, all the pieces we select falling into a visual world that's too similar or are they having opportunities to be more expressionistic or more realistic and literal like this year we were looking for a choice where there could be a re completely realistic box interior set, which we haven't done in quite a long while, and that's a different kind of experience for not just the designers, but the carpenters and the prop people and the set decorators and so on and so forth. So um, as we go forward, we're, I, I think that the conversation is going to continue where each of the reps from the different degree programs bring the needs of the students in their program at that time. or I'm fond of saying, what are the needs of the students in the company at the moment? Hmm. And we try to make our choices. And there's, there's a lot of 
bargaining that has to go on, and there's a lot of reading that has to go on. And totally opened this up to the entire range of people involved in the program. Yes. Yeah, and actually uh, there are two titles in next season that were submitted by students. So, I mean, not all the students even recognize that because uh, if you were a student and you submitted a list of plays, that doesn't mean that any other student in the building would have read them or even had a conversation right, to know that you right. had done that. But uh, two of those titles did come from students. Doesn't this, uh, doesn't this make the process an awful lot more complicated and longer than it had been? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. One thing about radio, I wish you could have seen that face. <laughs> but does it make it a whole lot more transparent? Yes. Do a whole lot more people have a seat at the table? It was a lot more democratic, though democracy takes time. Democracy definitely does take time. Too yep. many cooks and all that sort of thing. Yeah. What plays did you submit for next year? You know, quite frankly, I can't even remember because we, our area, the performance area, sat around the big conference table and we all brainstormed titles. I wish I could go back to that list because in the beginning there was a monstrous list that became smaller as the weeks went by. It took us several months to do this, by the way. Yeah, I yeah. bet it did. I, yeah. it's, it seems like uh, a long process. I think that I may have been attached to uh, Marat Saad somewhere Ooh, along the way. That keeps okay. coming up. And yeah. when I talk about that play and Peter Brook with students, they all seem really, really interested. Yeah. So there's that. I know that Shakespeare was on the list. We like to keep him in the rotation of course, every sure. couple yeah. of years. Um, so you are actually now engaged in rehearsal process for one of my favorite plays of all time, The Crucible, Arthur Miller. Yes, indeed. Where are you in the rehearsal process? We are uh, today's Tuesday, so we are on the second day of our third week. Okay. So where are we in the rehearsal process? We had a stumble through of the whole play on Sunday afternoon. I don't block traditionally, but I did work with the cast and got everybody through what I call the skeleton of each scene. Mm -hmm. And now we'll go back over it again to refine and develop and and in the best of all worlds, we have, we'll go back over it yet again. Some of the things, scenes happen, fall together more quickly than others. We're just past that first phase where the background is in, right. the skeleton is there, mm -hmm. and there isn't much muscle on it just yet, okay, <laughs> well, It's still in the early stages. Early stages. Is this yeah. a play you've done before, or is this new for you? No, I've never done it before. And even though I have submitted it a couple times in years past, I hadn't submitted it recently and we were starting to have this conversation about uh, the plays that we produced for the students to not always be from a director's shortlist so this was actually submitted on someone else's shortlist ah, and okay. I, I became attached to it in the process of building the season yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, what is it about this play that, that it, you like so much that fascinates you it's 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 a hot topic play and it's yeah. it's history It's the history i'm always fascinated by history whether it's amadeus and what was going on in mozart's life at the time or Coromboy, which was a rather ugly little piece of british history but mm -hmm. but true and our country's good with the whole uh, transportation sure, movement to australia what a way to get rid of crime and criminals just <laughs> dump them on another continent <laughs> but um this one one I grew up in Rhode Island in um, 
for us growing up in school, we were always taught about the colonial era and the importance of Roger Williams as having been a religious radical who was cast out of the Bay Colony. Mm -hmm. And then uh, years later, I worked on a project which actually became a film about Anne Hutchinson, who was also cast out of the Bay Colony and came to Rhode Island um, at Roger Williams' invitation and then moved on to toward New York, never made it. The place that she and her family were slaughtered was, is the location now of what's known as the Hutchinson Parkway. Um, so I, I'd had a fascination with that. Um, always knew about what had gone on in Salem. And also, coincidentally, Anne Hutchinson were, in their language, were cast out for a witch. Because she had a menopausal baby, I believe it was her 14th pregnancy, it might have been her 15th pregnancy, and the menopausal uh, baby proved that she was indeed a witch. Uh, I, I, I think the criteria from all the reading I've done, the history I've read, because I'm equally a history of buff as you, it's just the, the, the rules for witchcraft were kind of made up on the spot. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, and, and you know, what's kind of terrifying to me, but it's been engaging the way uh, a car wreck is on the side of the road. You don't want to look, but somehow you have to. At least I have that experience. When I started doing my research on this, uh, there was one book in particular that seemed to be pretty true to the court documents and other um, legal documents mm -hmm. that were extant about the events in the time. Is All the events of this play, or in the history books. Um, right. Miller did combine some characters into one person in the play, but he had to, given just numbers. And it's a pretty big cast play to boot. I mean, it, there'll be it like 22 people sure. up there. I, I, th I think condensation of characters is almost always required when it comes to some kind of historical rendition. That history, just as one of my colleagues said, that um, The Devil in Massachusetts is the book I'm talking about, right. was a real page burner. And I asked all the students who were cast in this project to read it before we started rehearsals. And so many of them would come up to me and talk about, wow, what, you know, what yeah. a story, what a, what a piece. And just recently, the thing has started to happen to me that's really kind of unnerving is... One of the actors will say one of Miller's lines up there, and I'll flash on to a newscast that I heard about Egypt, or even some of the stuff that's going on with Putin and what he's doing. That was my that was my next question. It's just mm -hmm. the play was written by Miller. It came out in 1953, which right. was McCarthy, Red Scare, uh, mm -hmm. House on American Activities mm -hmm. uh, Commission, of uh, an absolute stain on on America's history, but. The witch hunts, as they were called, were rampant. People lost their lives. They lost their careers. People turned on each other for right. fear of being harmed themselves. And that's exactly what goes on in The Crucible. Mm -hmm. You started talking about Putin. You started talking about Egypt. My question was going to be, is this play still relevant? I, I believe it is. And everybody that I know in the theater community has assumed that I was going to do something avant-garde or edgy or, how should I say out of the norm with this particular production. Right. And I feel like just leaving it in the period that Miller wrote it and telling the story straightforward and really making sure that the words of those people land for the audience 
is all that really needs mm -hmm. to be done. And if you want to sit there and be thinking about the whole period of McCarthyism and the Red Scare, um, you'll, you'll hear so much. If you want to be thinking about Egypt and what happened there, or is happening there, you'll hear so much. If you want to um, think about what's happening to gay people in Uganda right now. Sure, and, yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean it, it just stops me dead in my tracks. And right. what was going on in that town in the documents seems so clear, land grabbing and mm -hmm. old jealousies. And uh, we, we had a minister who was really, really unpopular, and it, it's well documented that they wanted him gone. Perfect excuse to get rid of him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that combined with, you know, in back in the summer, I was working with this thesis that what I was calling the failure of parenting of females in the 17th century. Um, Okay, yeah. let's yeah. let's let's hear something yeah. about this. Okay, well, as I was reading all these documents and so on, I mean, the girls were not attended to. You know, they, at that point, women couldn't own anything. Women could not vote. They could not take part in government. Women were chattel for right. all intents and purposes. Mm -hmm. Objects and, to be traded or sold for family uh, purposes. Right. You know, joining of families, joinings of fortunes. They were they were yeah they were possessions, and um, so. Young girls had sometimes, if they weren't being worked to the bone by either um, the person who had hired them to be their serving person or their parents, um, had time on their hands and they were able to gather in the minister's kitchen where Tichuba happened to be his slave and um, she had exotic tales. I mean, how seductive. Sure. I mean, it's like that still happens every day. The people with the best stories are the people who have people who want to sit down with them and mm -hmm. chat and visit. Yeah. And uh, tales of the far away and the exotic or yeah. places where people speak another language. Tichuba was from where? Barbados. Barbados, yeah. Uh, you know, and what I haven't been able to determine if she was Barbados born or if indeed she came from West Africa. Right. But at the time, I mean, the slave trade was huge and um, it was early it was early years in the Caribbean for all these huge slave populations in terms of their connection to Africa. Right. So their language was still alive. They hadn't all been converted to English yet. And a lot of their traditions and their religious practices uh, were still very much present and a part of their culture. Right. Uh, I said to the students last night, 200 years later, we'd be calling what I'm asking you to do here in this moment voodoo, or, which came from Santeria. But, I mean, right. there was a long evolution of that that all goes back to Africa. Yeah. And so we have this this woman who in history also had a partner, Slave John, he was known as in the documents, who was as much part of the whole I say inciting incident, yeah. if you will. But he doesn't appear in the play at he all. He does not appear in the play, but I think that's a dramaturgical device mm -hmm. that Miller made a choice on. And who knows if Slave John appeared in a draft. True. Do you have uh, a dramaturg for this play? I have a student dramaturg who's been working on us. Yep, Katie Newton is her name. She's a okay. senior. All right, and what's what's her plan of attack on this? I mean, it's, did you ask her to pursue a certain line of inquiry, or, or how how are you guiding her along? In this? Well, um, we're looking for 
historical accuracy from her. So when in the beginning she talked about the period to the students and she had done all the uh, research in terms of what appropriate customs, physicality between genders was and so on. And she's provided a timeline for us that we need to refer to periodically. Um, and written the dramaturgical notes. She'll get a, a message or two in every rehearsal report at the end of an evening. We need to know this, we need to know that. The other days she wasn't present, but someone said, how many people were in Salem when this was all happening? And I think right. everybody in the room had in their head that there were thousands, well, there were like less than 600 people in Salem while this was going on. With this, which sure. In Salem proper, now Salem town, which is more like, the, think of Tompkins County, right. City of Ithaca and Ithaca Town are two different entities. There, there were more and it expanded, but still it was only a couple thousand all told, mm -hmm. which I compare to my high school. Sure. And Did the events of the Crucible encompass the entire town or just the city proper? The town. The town. And there, before it had happened, oh, where nearby there was one witch uh, identified in the previous year nearby and then when this all began they started bringing people in from Boston and um, they the fear was that it would spread and it spread just a little bit but then when the, uh, sort of like communism back in the 50s mm -hmm. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> right and I saw you out to dinner with so-and-so Mm -hmm. So by association, you must be must a be communist, of course, or a witch. Explain yourself. <laughs> so yeah, um, it's scary. Back, back to the kitchen where Tichaba worked. We had all these young girls with a little bit of time on their hands to yeah. take a break and wander over there and hear a story of the rare and exotic. And uh, and these are girls who had no life whatsoever. Right, they were Since not educated. Of. They were. Uh, made to work most of the time. They were not spoken to as if they were real people. And this must have been like having an entire blockbuster all to yourself. <laughs> blockbuster of Facebook and a, and a pass to the cinema sure. every night of the week. Yeah. Even if they got to go once a week. Um, I keep having to emphasize to the actress that this is a culture where when it got dark, you burned your candle for a little bit and you went to sleep and you got up with the sun. I mean, Mm -hmm. think, think how complicated it, it becomes when you have to have enough candles in the course of a year to have a little bit of light 365 nights. Working, working with these kids, these, these college kids, all, all between the ages, what, 17 and 21, mm -hmm. limited life experience. Yep. Okay, we're not, we're not talking about how bright this kid is as opposed right. to that, and some of them have better instincts than others. Mm -hmm going through an acting theater program, this is all discovery, this is all building upon your own talents and, and what exactly are these kids bringing to this production? Because um, a lot of the things that you're talking about and you're teaching and that are going on in the play are things that a lot of these kids probably have no experience with. Right, but we're dealing with basic human beings, with human emotions and reactions to events that actually have parallels in their own life. Um, Peter Brook uh, talks about the fact that an actor can only meet a character, you can't ever become a character. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I cling to that pretty, pretty adamantly. Um, so we need to find that place where each of them actually has 
a meeting with their character, a commonality with their character, and, and some, sometimes it's a pretty far reach. I have students playing people in their 70s and 80s. Technically, Giles Corey, for instance, was one of the older people in there. Well, we're inverting that a little bit. He's, yeah. in our production, a little bit younger, but he's still one of the older guys. Um, that was so, always one of my questions about university theater productions when you have a, an actor who's between, you know, say, 18, Mm -hmm. playing somebody who's 73 yep. and asking them to become that person or meet that person and give us back a thoughtful, realized portrayal of mm -hmm. someone whose experience they have yet to begin experiencing. Mm -hmm. Research. 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 Um, they will all quote to you in unison something I say over and over. Stanislavski's words, you've either done it, you've seen it, or you've imagined it. And, sure. and we do have to talk sure. about it, and sometimes we have to stop and have pretty lengthy conversations, the, the table work phase. Okay. And uh, we talked on this production a little. I, I'm not a big fan of long time at the table, as they say. I like to like get up and start moving right, right away. But we talked a little bit more than I'm used to. And I like to have those conversations as they come up, too, rather than do all my table work at once and then get up and stage it and... You know, everybody's got a different Absolutely. approach to it, but um, sometimes I, I have to do a lot of uh, storytelling mm -hmm. to help them find it sure. or point to something in the news or history and, uh, yeah, okay. help them find that place where they meet. Well, since you know. started talking about table work, um, yeah. let's, let's talk about your, your process, your method for directing the play. I mean, mm -hmm. every director is different. There are a lot of similarities. I'm going to venture there are more similarities than differences. But mm -hmm. every director tries to put their own particular stamp on a play. What's your process? How do you, how do you get the most from your actors and your tech people when you're in charge of a production, when you're guiding it all the way through from table to opening night? Well, one, actors and tech people, that's two very separate they are discussion. extremely separate. Please right. do not get angry at me for lumping you together in that question. <laughs> but I'll talk about both because um, the discussions with the tech people started months and months and months ago. Um, and with, with them, I talk about the play and what it means to me. They talk about the play and what it means to them. And then they start bringing in research and I start responding and I bring in research and they respond and we tend to narrow and narrow and narrow it down where I started when talking to the tech design students involved in the production and I have uh, costumes lights set and sound all designed by students in mm -hmm. this production I was seeing in the beginning an image a gigantic image of a cross and what I would say is I see this cross descending on the people of this world until they were crushed by it. That, that's an image any tech person is going to love. Well, uh, set builder anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and I say that and then some research comes back that I never tripped upon that in many ways I never might even imagine might ever show up and you know we we do the dance of like what about and how does this work and if you do this and so on um, it starts to happen so we actually have um, two worlds here uh -huh. we have in the beginning a pretty um, good representation of the wild world and this is where I got a little heady because some of the uh, literary research on the crucible that uh, was 
been written in the Crucible is a play that has many dissertations oh, focused um, on it. Yes, yeah. it does. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, is about, you know, man taming the wild world, which is also this story of religion, you know, uh -huh. man taming that wild man within, if you will. Right. And so uh, we have this very bare platform downstage with this giant cross hovering over that whole place and the forest and often the distance uh, a mountain which is a graveyard in Eastern Europe actually so it's not the source isn't historically accurate but the emotional impact of the image is is exactly what right. I wanted and I think pretty strong and as the play progresses the trees are all cut down and when we get to the end man has conquered the wilds, if you will. The uh -huh. trees are all stumps, and all we have left on stage are crosses up on the hillside, the cross bearing down on us, and the jail itself, rather than being bars, is created by crosses that are held by those girls and a few others yeah. that uh, remain, that clung to the rightness of the court and their accusations of witchcraft and so on. So you've got a very definite point of view about this play. Yeah. <laughs> well, it doesn't help to be wishy-washy when you're trying to make a really That's clear true. statement. That's true. What, what about your actors? All right. So, um, so then months later, the actors come into the room. Yeah. And I'm just going to toss in here. Uh -huh. I had my first rehearsal on a Monday of the week before spring break, so that was in February. And on Tuesday, I had my first discussion for Good Person of Sichuan, which is the first play of next year, which okay. I also happened to be directing. And, you know, there were a few moments during that week where I literally had to stop and go, okay, which world am I thinking of right now? Right. And I, so as far as the actors go, it's, okay. what's your process with them? So, all right, so here we are finally at the, the first night of rehearsal and we go through the whole design presentation so they understand the physical world they're living in, they understand what they look like when they're dressed in the costumes and lighting and sound designers talk about the visual oral worlds. And we do our read-through, and then I say to them, okay, tomorrow night we're going to do the play. Now, this one I did two nights of that kind of thing, and the third night we did the play. Mm. And, and inevitably, unless they've worked with me before, they, they freeze like deer in the headlights and say, what do you mean we're going to do the play? And what we do is we do an improvised version of the play. Sometimes it takes several hours. But we spent the entire evening moving through the arc of the play, scene by scene, and I, and I say to them, and I find this to be really useful, and it's not an original thing, and when I was an undergrad, I had one director who did this, and I was always amazed how much of the text actually managed to show up in the improvisations. Is when you actually allow yourself to be in the given moment, some of those words that you heard once or twice, or maybe three or four times, actually kind of waft through your head, and they come to your aid when you're trying to yeah, express yeah. a certain kind of thought. Yeah. So, um, you know, if they come in on this evening knowing what they want in each step of the story, they've already done some of the most important work an actor can do. They figured out their arc within the play and where they're headed and so what am I wait, what's getting taken what kind of business is getting taken care of in this first scene and then I'm in the second scene and what are the important things that, and all the chaff goes away all, <laughs> there are no long monologues and you know rhapsodic passages right. that Miller is a little fond of um, he's been known to a, a long <laughs> monologue or two yeah and um, 
once we've done that, then we talk about, well, what do you know now? And then we go back and we start working through the piece. I'm not a person who blocks in the traditional sense. Yeah, let's talk more about that. How does that happen? So at this stage of the game, okay, now we're going to make that first past where we create the skeleton. All right. This is where in the world I see this scene or this event happening. And I'll talk about that. I'll describe a little bit of how I envision it. And uh, then I'll set them loose. And sometimes I have them improvise it again. Sometimes I'll say, what happened in that improvisation was exactly the feeling that I wanted to create. So what we're trying to do is recreate that. And let's see how we can now marry what's on the page, get your nose out of the book, but try to act and carry a book simultaneously and move. And I use a lot of viewpoints, which is the system and sure, yeah. developed to get them to follow their own instincts. I mean, not just as a teacher, because when I direct outside of here, I, I want to allow actors the freedom to follow their instincts and so have us all shape this together. Right. right. As organically as possible. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I, I find that I have to, with the students most especially, be perfectly clear by stating, don't think that this show is not blocked or set. However, it does not become set for a very long time. And I'll right. let you know when that must happen again and there are certain things that have to happen on a certain line, in a certain place, on a certain action, and that stuff is all identified, but there's a lot of other things that are uh, pretty malleable for a long time. Like, for instance, yeah. I, I have a student from the music school who is the music director for this, and we had a rehearsal last night where we were integrating. We have a chorus or a choir, if you will, as an scoring the piece with hymns from the time and fragments of the hymns and satanic variants of these hymns. Um, and he said to me after rehearsal, I learned something really important tonight. He said, made me laugh. He said, I learned that you don't have to have every answer to every question before you go into rehearsal. And I was like, that's it. That's, that's, like that. that's, that's an amazing piece of knowledge right there. Yep. Yeah. You know, and, and the conversation we had was, you know, when I was a younger teacher and director, I felt it was incumbent upon me to have an answer every time a question was answered. Even if right. I didn't have it yet, that was the moment where I had to come up with it. I had to figure it out right there on the spot. And then I studied with Ann Bogart for a while. And I'd ask her a question, and she would say to me, I don't know. I never <laughs> really <laughs> set me back. Wait a second. This, you're, you're a world-class genius, MacArthur genius. You know, right, like, right. But she would always say, I'll let you know when I know. I'll point at it when I see it. Yeah. And that gave me incredible permission to be truthful. I don't sure. know yet, but I, I know that I have to answer yeah. that before the show opens. I know from a, a, a directing course I took a number of years ago that my teacher basically told me the opposite. He said, mm -hmm. you've got to do so much research on this show that when an actor comes up with a question, you need to know the answer. You need to know the answer right then uh, so that they have continuity of leadership and the play moves along because if there's uncertainty, they'll be uncertain, which is not good. I have found that there's a certain trust if you answer the question eventually. You know, okay. I mean, if you never get back to it and people, I think people, it would take a while for people to notice that you're never really responding to this. Yeah. But How do your students react when they're going through this and they're reading the play and they witness the characters within the play turning on each other, one 
after the other. People who've either been married, people who've worked with each other, people who've lived with each other all their lives, all of a sudden scrambling over each other's shoulders to keep their heads above water while the rest of you know their friends and neighbors perish or are in danger of Yeah, perishing. that's a good one. Well, you know, the young actors have so many things in their heads. Mm. And um, I, I have to say that um, I think that is that realization, that awareness, and uh, an example of that happened last night in rehearsal is the first thing they're worried about, yes, at the table they may understand this intellectually, but they may not actually realize how they're going to make that manifest in human behavior and action until they're on their feet. And they may be saying the words and playing the action and not, I say, you know all the words and you sung all the notes, but you still don't know the song you're singing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes them a while. That, that, that's one of those things that seems to dawn in the last phase of rehearsal. And I'd like that to be happening before we go into tech as opposed to afterwards. But you never know when it's going to do that for somebody. Yeah. Um, and this, this actor was, oh my God, I never saw that. I never connected that line. I thought that line was this, and it's so personal and it's so direct, and so you know, in yeah. moments like that. So, um, but that happens because they're memorizing. You know, there's a great deal of pressure to get off book. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. Cool. What is it that you want your students, to, your your students who are working on this project, to take away from this? What's is there a lesson here? There's is there something you're trying to get? You know, always with the students, it's like how empowered you can be to be a part of the process and contribute to the overall. That definitely the director is a leader, somebody who has to have ideas and a vision and so on. But I mean, they're all my teammates; they're not my droids, if you will. Sure, yeah. Um, I don't want to cast an actor who comes to me as a tabla rasa mold me shape me make me into something i want to cast an actor who's got lots of ideas and instincts and let's figure out how all that stuff that you're feeling and all your instincts interface with where i'm headed with this and we don't do that in academia here because we're we're casting students pedagogically they need certain individuals need to be doing this kind of work right now in the arc of their training some of them are earlier, and some of them are graduating this semester. I've known I've known you for a number of years, and you and I have worked together on a couple of different things. And one of the things that's always fascinated me about the work that you do, and you did this when we were with Icarus, you came in and did a mask workshop. Yep. Um, are you using masks at all in this in this production, or a variant thereof? Uh, no, no. Uh, okay. And I, I actually realized that. Good person was a perfect example of a, a piece where I could finally use masks here. I've been here. This the next year will be my 25th year, and I haven't done a mask play yet. You're due. <laughs> <laughs> but I teach mask every spring in the sophomore uh, section, a uh, movement segment sequence, mm-hmm. and um, I taught mask workshop three or four times now, which is a separate course where they actually investigate ways of producing them as well as performing in them and the cultures that. You know, Ploy masks on right. the planet. Um, How are we planning but, on using them in good person? Or have you gotten to that point? Well, you know, I don't think we can because it, the whole thing of making them and fitting them and so on is pretty involved. So we won't. But um, at the end of the day, mask work 
is almost placebo for understanding somebody else's character. I mean, you're holding a character in your hand, and you're able to look at the person as an entity separate from yourself. And I, I have the students in the sophomore sequence create their own masks for that very reason, because a character is your subjectivity, not mine. Mm. And if you don't bring that, if you think there is a tabla rasa for John Proctor, uh, you're a little bit naive. delusional <laughs> or naive or something. There you go. Yes, yeah. I mean, there is such a, a body of potential Yes. on the page that Miller put down for any actor there and, and and now you have to figure out how you see that how you visualize how you physicalize that oh, Norm Johnson it, thank you so so much for giving us the time and uh, we are definitely looking forward to the Crucible, which goes up when? Uh, the preview is April 22nd. That's a Tuesday. And mm -hmm. then we open for real on the 24th, the Thursday the 24th, Friday the 25th, the 26th. And we close on Sunday the 27th of April. That's an awfully short run for such a big play. Yeah, well, that's the way the academic calendar goes. Okay, well, yep. we're looking forward to it. Thanks very much. Thank you, George.